Hey, I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show for and about grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Tonight on the show, Utah Manuel Romero. He traces five hundred years of his family's journey, the evolution of an American not as immigrants, but by treaty. His days growing up in Midvale, his role in founding the Utah Coalition of La Raza, and more. FYI, in 2010, he was awarded the Drum Major Award by the Utah Martin Luther King Jr. Commission, and he received the Cesar Chavez Peace and Justice Lifetime Achievement Award in 2013. Also this hour, Dr. Susan Madsen of the Utah Women and Leadership Project. She's back with the latest on sexist comments and responses in Utah, of course. Some are quite cringy. Also, I got a voice memo from NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador to Utah, Patrick Wiggins. He'll have some sun science for us later in the hour. We're going to start, though, with an update on COVID. Here's Dr. Michelle Hoffman, Deputy Director of the Utah Department of Health, with the latest numbers as the Omicron variant surges across the state. Unfortunately, we're beginning the new year in a really dire position when it comes to COVID-19. Yesterday, we experienced a record-breaking day in terms of case counts, and today we've broken yesterday's record with 8,913 new cases. There are more people hospitalized than yesterday, 530. There are more people in the ICU than yesterday, 188. And unfortunately, we continue to have people die from COVID-19. We will report 13 new deaths today, including a child. Our testing locations are bursting at the seams. More than 41,000 tests were conducted in the state yesterday. People are spending hours in their vehicles waiting to be tested. If you are seeking out testing, we need your patience. You'll experience potentially very long waits. Come prepared. Similarly, our hospitals are bursting at the seams. Our hospital partners here today will address this further. But they are caring for more patients, especially patients needing critical care, with fewer staff than ever because they're out sick or have simply given all that they can possibly give. Monoclonal antibodies, which have shown so much promise as a treatment that can help prevent serious illness and hospitalization, are in critically short supply. If your strategy was to hedge on getting vaccinated and seek treatment with monoclonal antibodies in the event that you test positive, it is time to rethink your strategy. Omicron has taken over and only one of the three publicly available monoclonal antibody treatments is effective against Omicron. As a result, hospitals and our other treatment partners have stopped using two ineffective treatments. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were treating more than 1,000 people a week with monoclonal antibodies. Last month at this time, we were ordering about 1,300 treatments per week. This week, we were only able to order 264. Recently authorized oral antiviral pills are in similarly short supply. We're only receiving about 220 courses of these pills each week. For the most effective oral antivirals and monoclonal antibodies, our statewide treatment capacity is less than 500 people per week. By our estimates, even the most highest risk eligible individuals, we would have 4,200 a week that qualify for these scarce 500 doses and treatment courses. There is some positive news. The one thing that is not in short supply or experiencing significant wait times to take advantage of also happens to be the one thing that is most effective at preventing cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And of course, as you all know, that one thing is vaccines. Everyone five and older is eligible to be vaccinated. And as of today, everyone 12 and older is eligible for a booster dose. We need more people to start their vaccination series that have not. Only half of Utahns 18 and older have had their booster doses, the very best protection that we have against Omicron. We need everyone who is eligible to get their booster doses now. Utah Department of Health Deputy Director Dr. Michelle Hoffman, those comments given earlier today in a community update organized by the Utah Hospital Association. And perhaps you've been confused by the messaging about the Omicron variant that it isn't as severe, but yes, it is more infectious, folks. So from that same community update, here's Dr. Marion Bishop breaking it down this way. Each of the phases of the pandemic has 
brought a, its own challenge. And as people have already stated, the challenge of Omicron, you know, we hope isn't severity of illness, but definitely is going to be the volume of, of sick patients. And even if, um, for, it, you know, from a percentage basis, we are seeing fewer uh, very sick patients. If more of us get sick all at the same time, that um, is, is going to be a very big challenge indeed. Uh, the, the tools we have to fight the virus, as people have said, um, are not perfect, but they're profoundly helpful. And I would echo everything everyone has said about vaccines and masking. And in particular about vaccines, uh, I would just provide experience that I've had in the emergency room. I've taken care of more COVID patients over the course of the last two years than I can count. Um, I've now seen enough patients with breakthrough infections, people who are immunized, who've had both doses, and sometimes a booster, to tell you that those are two very different diseases. They don't look very much alike at all. Um, unimmunized patients, uh, I have to give a pretty grim prognosis to when they land in the emergency room. We're always incredibly relieved to hear that a COVID positive patient has been immunized because we can tell them to plan for what is likely to be a much easier course of illness. And that's always a happy thing that I can do. Um, I'd repeat the, st the statistics that are currently on the Utah Department of Health um, uh, website that talk about uh, unvaccinated Utahns are almost 17 times more likely to, to die from the virus than vaccinated Utahns. And unvaccinated folks are 9.2 times more likely to be hospitalized. These statistics completely 100% bear out what my on the ground experience is telling me in the emergency room. Uh, there is protection from the vaccine and I would echo everyone else, everything everyone else has said that it's, it's worth getting. Um, second, masks can be incredibly important, especially in large groups. Uh, I know sometimes they're a hassle to wear, but I think being willing to wear them across the course of the next six to 12 weeks could be a real, real blessing to the friends and neighbors that we care about and also to protecting ourselves. Uh, I'm incredibly proud of the work my coworkers and I have done in the last two years. I work with a cohort of fierce, passionate people, and I'm just so proud to be a part of them. But we need your help, and I'm just asking you to bear with us for uh, another short period of time uh, and to give us some support so that we can continue to help you. Please get vaccinated and consider it if you haven't been. Uh, be willing to wear a mask when you're in a large group. And uh, is stay at home if you don't feel well. You deserve the rest and it will protect all of us as well. Uh, those of us working in hospitals every day would be so grateful for these small measures. And I think it would help us all get through this together. That's emergency medicine physician Marion Bishop from Brigham City Hospital and Cache Valley Hospital in the Mountain Star Healthcare System. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the community update from the Utah Hospital Association if you'd like to hear more. And of course, wash those hands, wear your mask, Get the booster, get the vaccination. You can find testing sites and vaccination clinics online at coronavirus.utah.gov. And now for something completely different, a voice memo from NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador to Utah, Patrick Wiggins, with where we are and where the sun is. NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador to Utah, Patrick Wiggins here, with a spiffy space fact. This week, here in early January, finds the Earth as close to the sun as it's going to get this year. Now, that might sound counterintuitive. I mean, hey, it's freezing out, and yet we're closest to the fire? Well, it turns out the change in distance from when it's closest, that's now, to when it's furthest, that's in July, doesn't really change that much. So the distance doesn't really matter. But what does matter is the tilt of the Earth. You might remember that the Earth doesn't stand, you know, like straight up. Rather, it's tilted a bit, something like 23 or so degrees off the side. Why is that? Uh, that topic for another day. At any rate, right now, we in the northern hemisphere are on the half of the Earth, which is tilted away from the sun. That means the sun is much lower in the sky. Well, that also means that it comes up later and goes down earlier than it does, say, in summer meaning that, uh, well, now we're only getting about nine hours of sunlight as opposed to some 15 hours of sunlight in the summer. Of course, if you really want a lot of sunlight and heat, try heading south of the equator because down there, their part of the Earth is currently tilted towards the sun, making it, well, summer for down under. Clear skies. Thank you, Patrick. 
Haven't heard from you in a while. Thank you so much for sending over that voice memo. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Patrick Wiggins, who has a minor planet, 4099 Wiggins, named for him, and is the recipient of the NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal, the highest honor NASA awards to anyone who was not a government employee when the service was performed. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. Up next, Manuel Romero on his new book, Mia Medica, The Evolution of an American Family. Utah has more than 10,000 nonprofits, like Women of the World, which needs practical English volunteers and mentors. You can help forcibly displaced women make Salt Lake City their home and build community through self-reliance and trust. Details at womenofworld.org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9 Worldwide, at krcl.org. I spoke with my next guest just before the holiday break about his memoir, Me America, The Evolution of an American Family. He traces almost 500 years of his family and their journey to becoming U.S. citizens, not as immigrants, but by treaty. Also, his time growing up in Midvale, his role in founding the Utah Coalition of La Raza, and more. Here's our conversation. So you published this book in the first year of the pandemic. (laughs) But I would really love to know about this 500 years of the Romero and Madrid family. In fact, these two stories are intertwined, and there's a great uh, graphic on page four of your book, 17 Generations of La Familia de Emilia y Rodolfo Romero. Tell us who they were and how far back their story goes. Oh, very good. Again, thank you. And uh, I might add that uh, the month that my book was published is the month that they declared COVID a pandemic. There you go. So, <laughs> uh, so off to a great start, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. My my parents were fascinating people. I mean, they were low key. They were uh, not rich, uh, uh, but you know, just raised a great family. And then as I researched my family, and I've been hearing these stories for years from relatives, from my great grandparents, but I never was able to really find anything in the history books about this this transition from Spain to Mexico, to New Mexico, into Utah. And uh, what made it even more fascinating as I read is that our family was very integral in the history of New Mexico. Uh, uh, before, well, it was still part of the Spanish Empire, and when it became part of Mexico, and when it became part of the United States. So uh, I write in my book that my, my great grandparents became U.S. citizens of three different countries, or excuse me, became citizens of three different countries and never once left their house. Yes, the, so borders, I, the borders crossed them several times. Exactly. So as I was conducting this research, and the more I researched, the more frustrated I became because there just wasn't a lot written about this history. And it was a, it's a rich history. Uh, and that goes back, as you pointed out, almost five centuries. And so, uh, but I wanted to go uh, and really get a feel for not only who they were, but where they came from and how we got our religion, how we got our language and the role that Islam played in our history uh, uh, while it it was in Spain for 700 years and then transitioning to uh, Mexico during the conquest and how that's really where uh, we, when I say we, I'm talking about the mestizo, the mulatto, the mixed blood, the Mexican-American, that's really where we were made because we really didn't exist as a people prior to that. So you might say we were made in America. Made in America. Yeah. Two valleys play an important role in your family's history. Can you talk about the Penasco Valley and then the Salt Lake Valley where your family eventually settled? Yes, yes. Well, my family settled at Penasco Valley in the about the mid 1600s, and re, and our family remained there for almost 350 years until we moved to Salt Lake in the 1950s. And uh, now the the Penasco Valley is a beautiful to me, a beautiful and very alluring place. Uh, we it's very spiritual, very cultural. If you go back there now, you'll still find remnants, not just remnants, but the people still speak Spanish. The food is very unique. It, and because of its isolation from both Spain uh, and the Spanish Empire and the Mexican government, we kind of developed this unique culture, if you will, this also a unique language and eventually became where well, you will hear a lot of Spanglish uh, because there was just a lot of uh, a lot of words that just didn't translate or had been introduced uh, as the Americans uh, came into the uh, 
the New Mexico or territory. And so a new language uh, evolved from there as well. And so the Spinesco Valley is rich in history. And uh, as I said, because we had been there for almost 350 years, obviously we have deep roots in that in that valley. And uh, a lot of our relatives still there. And it's a place that we visit quite frequently, not just me and my family. I myself have made the trip to New Mexico about from here to um, from Salt Lake to Pinasco about 500, about 50 times, for example. So it's a rich place. And then then we moved to Salt Lake in the 1950s, first starting off in Bingham Canyon, then moved into Midville and took off from there. Place has a huge role in your life. And part of what I read in your, your fascinating book is um, a, a time in your life when people would say, go back to Mexico. And so you did. Talk to me yes. about your education path. Yes. And uh, well, so we're really, uh, this is very interesting because this is really what got me started on writing this book. So I received a scholarship from the government of Mexico when they discovered their petroleum in the, uh, uh, on the East Coast. And they got together with some leaders from the United States and created this scholarship program called Becas para Slan. So from 79 to 81, I studied at the University Nacional Autónoma de México, studied there political science, international relations for two years. When I returned, uh, I came back to Utah. First, I went to New Mexico, taught there for a while and returned to Utah. And about six years ago, a friend of mine, he asked me to write a, a 20 page paper about my experience in Mexico. Well, it turns out I turned in 40 pages <laughs> because I just couldn't tell how I uh, about my experience in Mexico without how I uh, telling how I got there and how I got there was obviously through uh, uh, my education, my involvement in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And, I mean, excuse me, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it really uh, it was during that Chicano civil rights movement that I really became entrenched and very interested in our family history because it was back then that I started to discover more and more just how much uh, history uh, had been left out of U.S. history books. And so I uh, went to the University of Utah, graduated there in political science. Uh, I was also a uh, Hinckley intern while at the University of Utah. And then uh, uh, so then I went to Mexico and studied there for two years, went to New Mexico, taught and then taught uh, and then received a, a, bachelor, a master's degree from the uh, University of New Mexico. And uh, I also had an opportunity to intern for governor or at the time, uh, uh, Congressman Bill Richardson. And, and that really gave me a lot of experience and, and really began to give me an idea of how government works. So when I was teaching political science, I had a good sense of uh, being in Washington, how government works. And I was able to translate that uh, into the classroom. And so my education became very important to me. And along with that, just constant learning about our history, it just enticed me to have to write this book. You, you know, uh, past his prologue, as we sit here today in almost 2022, and I look back across the last couple of years and, and the trajectory of Black Lives Matter, your history is entwined with Latino or Chicano activism and the rise of Utah Coalition of La Raza, which you helped found. And I'm kind of curious your take on then and now, because Utah Coalition of La Raza um, one of the things it addressed was the shooting of Latino men by law enforcement. Yeah, so, uh, and, and interestingly enough, so uh, let, let me just take a step back because what's important in this is as, as I was writing this book, and as you just pointed out with Black Lives Matter and all these be, um, events that have not been, been written about so much are coming to surface like Juneteenth and the Tulsa massacre. Well, my book kind of does the same thing. So I'm introducing kind of new information into American history, if you will. Talk to me a bit about the activism of of your young adulthood and today and the lessons that a broader lens of history could bring to this subject. Sure. Well, you know, in my activism, it really began at the University of Utah. When I uh, uh, enrolled there and I enrolled and I was uh, fortunate enough to be uh, because I was a veteran, I was part of the GI Bill. And that's really where my interest and, and I began to peak about our history. I went to the University of Utah, I became very involved in what at that time was called the Chicano uh, Student Association. And we were constantly advocating for more students in medical school 
we're constantly uh, advocating for more students in law school. And so my activism really stood, again, it was it was sparked there. And, and as a result, I might add that uh, between 1968 and 1976, approximately, the Latino uh, enrollment at the university more than quadrupled because of our activism. So I think that was a very important landmark. And uh, after leaving there and coming back, I again became very involved uh, in the civil rights movement in Utah and get in, involved in, uh, in marches and uh, protests to try and bring attention to our issues. Um, but then when I went to, when I, um, I went to Mexico, I returned, came back to Utah, and I, uh, there was an organization in the 60s that was very prominent called Socio, Spanish-speaking organization for community integrity and opportunity. Well, they had become kind of dwindled, and they were not very active, and uh, so I felt there was a huge need for a organization to address the issues and advocate for the Latinos in Utah, and this is where uh, I came up with the idea of the uh, Utah Coalition of La Vesa by bringing together 17 different organizations from around the state and where we could concentrate on their activism uh, uh, as an organization and they could concentrate on their uh, primary functions, uh, whether it was education uh, or um, medical issues or health uh, healthcare rather. And so we, we brought this coalition together uh, of 17 and we had for a long time, we had tremendous success. Uh, it was recognized as the premier Latino organization in the state of Utah for the longest time. So the 17 organizations that signed on to the Utah Coalition of La Raza back on October 12, 1993, and one of your first official actions with La Raza was to meet with a newly elected Republican sheriff who asked the opening question, how do I know these individuals speak for the larger Hispanic community. And without skipping a beat, both Randy Horiuchi and Jim Bradley responded in their authoritative voices, Sheriff UCLR speaks for the community. And in that moment, you write, UCLR became our legitimate voice. How important was that to the history of Latino rights here in Zion? Well, it was very important because, as you know, in order to be heard, you have to be uh, at least have the perception that you are legitimate. And at that moment, when uh, both Randy and Jim declared with their authoritative voice, yes, this is the Latino organization that represents the larger Latino community, that kind of gave a sense of empowerment, if you will, uh, to the organization. And I think that in itself, and obviously other uh, uh, issues that we took on, it gave us, it, it, it galvanized, it helped us unite. It really brought us together because we did feel like we were that legitimate, legitimate voice uh, for the uh, Latino community in Utah. So uh, again, it was very, very important. And you know, we can't, uh, I can't thank them enough for their remarks. So here at the start of a, a new year, hopefully a better year for, for everyone, hopefully putting this pandemic in our rear view, year, rear view mirror, what what is your message to to Utah to the Salt Lake Valley and tying it to the Penasco Valley as well about our own histories and more fully telling them and bringing them to the table? <laughs> A good question. So here's what's happening. So we became uh, citizens of this country by treaty, and. Uh, now, the, at that time, the Northern Empire was, is now New Mexico, was only a, a, a colony, if you will, of the larger uh, Spanish Empire. Uh, obviously, they, was, uh, they were in Peru, they were in Guatemala, they were in throughout. The, and so we were just kind of a, a piece of that larger puzzle. And, but it t- turns out that after Mexican independence, we became uh, Mexican citizens. And then after uh, 1848, U.S. citizens. And what you see happening is in the larger context, uh, because we have been here, is by uh, the year 2050, one-third one of all citizens of the U.S. will be Latino. Okay, so what does that say? That means that we are having a larger and larger role in the, not only uh, Utah uh, political life, but also in U.S. political life. And so we've had time to uh, really uh, look at these issues that have impacted us for years and be while years past, it might have been things like uh, like healthcare, voting rights, and it still is voting rights and uh, education. Uh, the, the larger picture is that we are becoming part of the fabric of the United States, and it's becoming a larger piece of the fabric of the United States. And so it won't be uh, 
by that time, I mean, we will be, and in Utah, we will be also, uh, at least one of every three uh, citizens of Utah will be Latino. So where, where do we go from here? What does that tell us about the larger picture uh, as we grow? What can we learn from this population? Because this diversity becomes, it's not something we can avoid. It's something that's coming. It's something that we're going to be a part of. And But the more important piece to this is that we as Latinos, we have to have a, a greater role because, but we first have to understand our history. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this, this book, because by understanding where we've been, we can better understand where we're going. And to me, so that was very important. So as we uh, come into a new year uh, and we see all these changes that are taking place, but also also the backlash with voting rights, uh, with uh, the continued police shootings, with education, with health care and the constant struggle with that. I mean, and so we, what we have to do is get more involved. But we have to understand our history. And I think by understanding our history will help us get not only understand, but get us more involved uh, in the governing of our nation. You mentioned the growth of the Latino community by 2050. Well, Utah's population alone is expected to double Mm -hmm. by 2060. Um, That's going to bring with it great change. We have members of the Latino community in elected office. I'm thinking of Luz Escamilla and Angelo Romero in particular. Um, What is your advice for young folks, young Latinos and Latinas today about the hope for their future, given the dire straits that I think we're all feeling in during this pandemic and social unrest? Well, as you know, there is power in numbers. And we have, we're getting, and we have those numbers, but our task is to get them more educated, more involved in the political system. That is getting them educated in the voting process, getting them to vote. That will give us a greater voice. Uh, we can protest, sure, we can march, but the most important thing is going to be to get out there and vote. And unfortunately, we don't have a great voting record when it comes to the Latino community. So that is going to be very, very important because that is going to dictate our future. And the more we can, we got to get out there, we got to get them to vote, we got to get them to not only vote, but also if when they can run for office. There are so many sharp individuals. I am part of the University of Utah's, uh, I used to be part of the University of Utah's Chicano Scholarship Committee. And every year we give out somewhere around 15 scholarships. And I hear these young people speak, and many of them now are are dreamers. And I hear them with enthusiasm, with charisma. So the leadership is there, or at least the potential is there. And so what we need to do is just get out there and get these individuals more active in their communities, because everything has to start at the community level. And to know and be proud of your history, especially when yes. you have resources resources like Mi America from Manuel Romero. <laughs> thank you so much for giving me some time today. Well, thank you, Laura. I really appreciate it. And I just, uh, we got a new year coming up, and I hope that it becomes a, even a better one and we get this pandemic behind us. <laughs> now, people can pick up your book from your website, which is? MiAmerica2020.com. That's MiAmerica2020.com. And I can they can order a signed copy. I'd be happy to sign that for them and get it out to them. So again, thank you, Laura. I really appreciate this. Now, are you still, are you in Utah now? Is, are you, uh, have I reached you in Utah? You have. I'm uh, in the Sandy area. Okay, great. And, uh, yes. <laughs> well, I'm always looking for people to do a takeover of my show and have the conversations they'd like. That's part of my mission on Radioactive. So um, if there's like a panel discussion I could help you facilitate that you'd be interested in doing, please, please let me know. Um, it's one of the commitments I make to folks who come on my show who who I feel have great things to say and keep saying. So if you're interested, you've got my email and we can keep this conversation going, okay? Well, thank you so much. And I just might add that uh, I was there when KRCL first started, way back when. I was there uh, helping with the station uh, and uh, because I was very involved in the community, uh, they asked for our support and I was there very enthusiastically getting KRCL off the ground. It's so fantastic to know that... um, your history and KRCLs share just a bit of common ground. So I look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Manuel Romero's website, where you can pick up a copy of Mia Medica, The Evolution of an American Family. Dr. Susan Madsen is up next right here on Radioactive. To get us there, how about some John Lennon? It's so hard on KRCL.
The Utah Black Artists Collective connects and showcases artists of color throughout the state. The nonprofit also offers a mentorship program for young artists of color. More details at ublack.org. That's U-B-L-A-C dot org. KRCL donors and sustainers, we love you. Happy New Year from all your friends and DJs at KRCL. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now!, followed by Thursday Night Psych with DJ Mike, Giuliani and the Dirty Boulevard at 10.30, I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich at 1, Jolene's Illustrated Blues at 3, and then John Florence starting your brand new day at 6 a.m. More programming information online at krcl.org. Click the programming tab to listen to any show on demand. We've got the last two weeks online for you. Dr. Susan Madsen of the Utah Women and Leadership Project spoke with me just before the winter break. Hosted by Utah State University, the nonprofit works to strengthen the impact of Utah girls and women. They did a big survey from which they're pulling all sorts of qualitative data about sexist comments and responses in Utah. Some of this next conversation is cringy, folks, but here we go. Dr. Madsen, welcome back to Radioactive. It's great to be here again. I am not sure if I'm glad you're back this time, though, because this is the comments that you promised in the work you've been doing, trying to understand sexist comments and responses in Utah, gathering this data, which I think everyone kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge knows goes on in our conservative culture here in the beehive state. But you're really trying to put the data to this topic so it can't be ignored. Let's remind folks the the survey you did was back in May, June of 2020, right? Yeah, we've we've uh, been working on the analysis for this study for a while. And so it's not just uh, when we're when we're talking about this topic, we're not just saying, oh, he, these are some experiences we've seen or we've heard. We actually did a in-depth scholarly study on this and we collected over a thousand women's comments. We utilized some of them were not full, but we utilized uh, over 800 of them. And there were 1,750 unique scenarios reported. So that's a lot of information from a lot of women in Utah. And I have to say that we asked them specifically, like, who said this? Was a man or a woman? Not the name. We don't, you don't have the name. <laughs> but the man or the woman, the age, the what kind of setting was it in? Was it in a workplace? Lots of them were workplace, but we had a lot in religious settings or was it in the uh, just a community or in a school or university? So we collected all that information to kind of get a feel of who who were making those comments and and then the specific comments. And and so in this uh, six page we limit our briefs to six pages. <laughs> you keep them and, brief. But we packed them full of comments so that people could really kind of get a taste for that. So again, our overall framing study came out. I mean, our brief came out. And then we introduced four different categories that we divided these comments into. And this is our first that really dives into one of those. And this one really is focused on inequity and bias specifically. I mean, there's, I have to say, Laura, there's hostile and unconscious bias in pretty much all of these. Okay. However, we really focused this on some very specific categories uh, related to those elements. Yeah, and you, your report, your rather your brief says almost 40% of all sexist comments were categorized in the theme inequity and bias. Yeah. So break that down a bit. Give me an example of a comment that uh, someone reported experiencing. Well, we have four different categories even within this brief. One of them was unconscious bias. And I'll tell you, almost every comment could be unconscious bias. But these were really, really um, frequently they play out with discrimination or inequity. But we really tried to just take certain we we limited the comments in this to really broad stereotypes. So a few examples in that. So we have, again, four different categories. Unconscious bias was one. General gender inequity was another. 
defensiveness or backlash against uh, feminism was a third. And then let's save some time for the fourth, because I have a lot to say about that one. And that one is gender pay or promotion or hiring inequity. And some of those are the ones that bother me and, and disturb me the most, I have to say. So in terms of the unconscious bias, those general biases we put here, um, it, it, oh, so many of them. Uh, one of them was, I was taking a standard exam and the person running me through the timing rules asked what score I was hoping for. And then I was told, uh, that's kind of a high score for a girl. A girl. A so girl on top there's of a it. Few, a few <laughs> problems with, with that one. Um, and, and another one, I, I am an attorney and I went to another law firm to represent my client in a desk, uh, deposition, a young female receptionist asked if I was the court reporter. They assumed a young woman would be a court reporter and not an attorney. So, so there's, we, we share a number of those kinds of, of things. Um, and, and um, let me see, let me just glance. Uh, oh, a man in my workplace said, I mean this as a compliment, but you don't look like an engineer. Um, and and one of my uh, favorites uh, uh, relates, we had some mansplaining things in this category. Uh-huh. And uh, this one is interesting. At the gym I frequent, a gentleman kept coming over to my workout area to teach me how to properly use certain pieces of equipment. I have been trained in this exercise and I've used this equipment daily for 15 years <laughs> but his mansplaining was obnoxious so um oh that's just a taste of them um and we really even within that court category we had different categories even within that like different things just assuming you wouldn't know something or as an assumption about women's capabilities or, or, um, you know, just being excluded. We, I didn't even share those, just being excluded from things because there was an assumption. Uh, this one bugs me. I was visibly pregnant when my husband and I applied for a construction loan. The loan officer told me he wasn't comfortable including my income as part of consideration for our loan application because because given my condition, he was positive I would be staying home and losing that income. Wow. I know. I knew, I mean, that's a financial. That's a financial impact. Uh, yeah. There, uh, there was another one, too, about, about her. I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but a, a woman and her husband, or a woman mainly putting in the paperwork for, the, for loans. It was turned down numerous times. Her husband called. Same information. Over the phone. Yep was given the loan. Okay, so this data is important. I mean, these are folks responding to a survey and sharing their experiences, but I, this the amount of data becomes incontrovertible in my mind, but I'd love to hear more about defensiveness. Uh, yeah, comments. that defensiveness is, is really interesting. The uh, I can give you so many that bug me, but this one, he said, if women, women weren't seducing men in the workplace, then these Me Too situations wouldn't be happening. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it's yeah. all my fault. <laughs> it, it is interesting. Um, let me pull out a couple of more. Um, um, a, a church leader told me to temper my career aspirations because my primary focus should be to raise a family. Well, that message um, is loud and clear in Utah. Yeah. I was told that because I have short hair and more feminist leaning ideas, I wasn't marriage material. And people um, just offered this up to this person. This is Yes. All of these are different people. Um, yeah. he uh, uh, an, uh, Another one. He said, they are only letting minorities and women right now in referring to graduate school. So yeah, if you, you're just going to get in if you're a woman and minorities, yeah. um, and so so many so many things. And and I just want to say this though, most of the over eighty percent of the comments were men to women. A lot of them, a majority, were in the workplace, and typically, often 
by people who had authority over them. However, you know, a little bit less than 20% was were women mm-hmm. to women. Yeah, those gender norms and stereotypes affect us all, and they're baked into our brains from an early age. Yeah. And so we, you know, I'm sure you and I, I mean, I try and be really, really yeah. careful about it, but mm-hmm. I'm sure we have done the same thing. Of course. Um, and, and I try not, I really have been working, you and I have talked a couple of times about benevolent sexism. I work really hard not to do that uh, to other people. Um, and, and you see that play out in, in some of these. And, and I love, like I said, I love that. I'm going to shift us, if you don't mind, to, I just don't want to run out of time, into that gender pay um, gap and hiring inequity. Oh, I've got stories I should have shared, but oh, let's, hear no. what, let's hear some of the comments you got. Well, first is what I want to set the stage is that I still get people from Utah who say, oh, this is a myth. This wage gap is a myth. Well, first of all, it is not. There are thousands of studies. I mean, it's so well documented. And so then the second reaction is, well, in fact, I've gotten a couple of, of emails in the last two weeks from maybe two people that say it's all women's choices. Women choose to have do certain things. Um, and as you know, Laura, when we look at the wage gap, there's so many things on educational level and types of degrees and occupational segregations. But whatever is out there, you bring it in and there's still a big chunk of discrimination. Well, I will say that the, the we have evidence beyond belief. Uh, here's a few. A colleague said, your husband makes a good salary, so this salary for you is more than plenty. Here's another one. A company boss discussing annual pay increases said that a female employee should get less of a raise because her income is supplemental. So that assumption that women's income is supplemental, which you know, as well as I and most people that uh, uh, there's so many women, I mean, they are the breadwinners and all so many single mothers in the state and women that are not married. And, and, you know, there's so many situations. Um, I don't know. Any I'm comments over here. Before? I'm just over here breathing deeply and counting to 10 because this isn't <laughs> about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. We, we, um, oh, here's another one. I, I've got so many. When I asked for a, a raise similar to a male colleague's salary, I was told that because I didn't have children and wasn't the head of a household, I didn't need to make as much money as he did. Um, and, and let me just, this one is, is really a sad one. My boss came to me unsolicited and sat down and proceeded to tell me that he was the last of a dying breed of male chauvinist pigs. And that if a man applied for a job and I applied for the same job, regardless of my qualifications, the man would get the job because he had a family to feed. Um, so, I mean, we're about to start 2022 and uh, my blood pressure is already <laughs> boiling. And, and you know, the, the, the men and male identifying among our listeners, you're just going to take it on the chin for this conversation. But because, uh, as you said, the majority, 80 percent of the comments were coming from men. Now, I understand from your analysis here that the profile of those making the sexist comments in this theme, um, usually male, someone with authority over the respondent in a workplace setting and 35 to 59 years of age. I was a little shocked about how young the commenters were in making these sexist comments. But now I want to know, how do women react to these comments? How often they did they laugh it off? My generation, that's what we would do. We would make a laugh and, and, and tell them something coarse, perhaps. Uh, and then, of course, you would suffer some backlash from that, too. But how did women react, react well, by and large? That's what we collect. A lot of women, they told us their reactions, and then they said, but if I had to do it again, it would be different. And so we've really documented six main chunks of reactions. So one was a direct response of some kind. And sometimes that was just, you know, sometimes it was just commenting or or people laughing it off or whatever. Sometimes it was just being very direct saying that's inappropriate. 
you know, um, and sometimes it's, it's with that education. So a lot of trying to educate or trying to say, come on, you know, think about that. I don't, maybe you didn't attend that, but there was a direct response. However, I was surprised that 27, over 27% of the people had no response. They just didn't know what to say. They just had no response. They just walked off, didn't have a response at all. And then a number of them, about 20% just said, oh, I thought about it and thought about it. And I had afterthoughts. If I would do this again, this is what I would say. And then some had indirect response and some just had really emotional responses. So, so we separated those out. And there were other types of responses as well, but we have examples of each of those. Um, for, I'll just give you one for the direct response. My boss asked me to make cookies for an event and I asked which day he would like me to take off to bake them. The other started to laugh, and then he slowly caught on to what he had asked of me. I was the only woman in the room. So um, that was a, an example of a direct response. Did the, um, did the woman who had her boss tell her he was the last of a dying breed, a male chauvinist pig, have any response? <laughs> you know what? I don't, I don't know. I haven't linked that. Uh, the, some of the other re- coders would probably know that. That's... That's a shocking one, though. A no response was, you know, this was really a common theme that they were stunned. Yeah. And, and someone said, I just froze. I had no. It was so shocking. It was disgusting or whatever. I didn't say anything. Uh, one person said, I didn't feel safe to respond. Yeah. you're In that and moment, then, you're wondering, do I respond? What's the backlash? Do I want to stay here? Do I document this? But what this all comes down to is... Sexism is alive and well in Utah. It, it, it is. It is. And, and uh, you know, sometimes, you know, the hope is in our responses for this brief, the hope is that it can better prepare women to think, well, I'm not alone, but let me think ahead of time. How would I respond to this? And some of them, Laura, were humor. Sometimes you just put out that humor and you make the point and it gets at and and people are educated. Sometimes you pull a person that you really respect uh, aside or someone you don't respect maybe and say, you know what, I, I don't think you intended this, but let me just show you what, what that might have come across or it did come across. And so I think more and more, um, there's a lot of women and men that wanna support women. And so if we help people to see um, and give them women who confront this, more tools, options, I, I think we're going to change things in the workplace. Um, it's going to be slow, though, but but relationship by relationship, you know, we can try and be better, I think. So, and I'm, I'm learning from this study, yeah. I have to say. I mean, I don't outwardly try to make sexist comments, except for my husband. We'll be hiking, Laura, and I'll say, uh, are you mansplaining me right now? <laughs> <laughs> Um, he smiles and is like, can I mansplain? I'm like, yeah, I don't know much about that. So go ahead and mansplain. Go ahead and mansplain <laughs> it for me. Well, and I, I wonder, you know, I'm guessing you, you have quite an email list and policymakers are on it. But I think you might need to print this one out and take it up to the Capitol in January oh. when the general session of the legislature starts. So we don't have people, lawmakers, uh, wondering if um, they're female employees are going to be bringing the kids in if they're going to remembering an incident from a previous legislative session where lawmaker made a rather uncouth or uninformed comment about female employees and it is you know it is interesting and and i this brief also has some examples of um of and we'll have them in other briefs of you know focusing on appearance and some different things like that. We we really, really in the next brief in in objectification is the one coming up next. Just so you know, and that one is is a major one. You'll be surprised, but I really think um, this is this is good information for us to have that we really do know that people experience this. Or maybe if I've experienced that, that I can feel maybe I'm not alone Um, and hopefully create some tools. I mean, the point, obviously, is 
that we are all informed so that we have less of this and hopefully one of these years, none, but uh, that might be a few years to come. Dr. Madsen, where can folks find this latest brief and look forward to the next one? Thank you. All, all of our research is on our website uh, with the Utah Women in Leadership Project, utwomen.org. And if you just go over to the research tab, you can go down and see various reports, but this one's under our briefs. Dr. Susan Madsen of the Utah Women and Leadership Project, which is hosted at Utah State University. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the organization and the latest brief, breaking down sexist comments and responses here in the Beehive States, folks. I'm Laura Jones, and, and that's our show. But before I go, I wanted to circle back to where we started, and that was with the latest community update on covid organized earlier today online by the Utah Hospitality Association. One of the participants was a registered nurse who spoke on behalf of others in her line of work and what they're experiencing, the strains and stresses. My name is Tracy Nixon. I'm the chief nursing officer for University of Utah Health Hospitals and Clinics. And to add upon uh, what you've already heard, I want to share with you a little bit, um, a little bit about the impact of this surge on our ability to staff and take care of our community and our region. Uh, this is something we tried to prepare for two years ago when we went into this and started our planning when we were fully staffed. Today, we our staffing is so incredibly limited um, because of the healthcare providers and workers that have left, um, left healthcare and their professions altogether. So we enter this point in this, in this moment in time, I'm already dramatically understaffed. And now with the increase in um, uh, staff out due to COVID-related reasons, I am unable to care for the patients that we need to. We have closed beds in our hospital, one of the hardest decisions we've ever made. We are facing shifts where we are so understaffed that our staff are afraid to come to work. They're afraid to be here because they know we do not have the staff available to care for the patients in the way they need on Tuesday of this week in one of my uh, care departments, um, I had three nurses leave because they can't do this again. They feel like we're going backwards. Uh, this, you know, the new year always, I think, you know, brings hope for all of us and that we hope this looks differently and to step into this new year um, and face such a um, dramatic increase in our COVID numbers and to see ourselves back in this place and, and truly in many ways in a worse position than we were uh, when we started this two years ago is incredibly difficult on our teams. We are not able to provide care for our community when we close our beds and when we don't have staff to take care of those patients. We are turning transfers away, people who need this level of care. Um, we were on ambulance divert for six hours last night because our, our ED was overwhelmed with patients seeking care um, at a time when, again, we don't have staff and we've closed beds um, and we're unable to provide that. Um, it, is, it is a dire time uh, for all of us, uh, for our healthcare teams in particular, to stand in this space again. And that is registered nurse Tracy Nixon, the chief nursing officer at University of Utah Health. Folks, please do what you got to do and what you know you got to do to help beat back this surge of the Omicron variant of covid for more details, you can go to krcl.org or coronavirus.utah.gov, which has the latest up-to-date information on the pandemic. Also, you can sign up for testing or get the vaccination or booster. Still have some time in the show, so I'm going out with one of my favorite bands, and it is The Pretenders. My city was gone. Don't let it be gone. Do what you got to do to beat back COVID. Right here on KRCL 90.9.